Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemus, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm Shakespeare enthusiast Mike Emmel, and I am very excited to be joined for tonight's episode by the woman who rules over everything the light touches, Amanda Emmel. Welcome back to the show, babe. Yay, that's me. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. You haven't been on since last Christmas when we talked about It's a Wonderful Life and Meet Me in St. Louis. Yes. Also good movies. Also good movies. Yeah, you you really know how to pick them. So I'm so excited to welcome you back, hon. Welcome. Thank you. And welcome back, everybody who's listening. It is wonderful to have you all here, and we hope that you enjoy the show. If you do, remember you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemus.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for daily interactions and updates on show content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. You just need to search for Cinemusts. So Amanda, you and I are here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we're going to need the help of everybody listening as two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. So to help us build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemus.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Amanda, would you mind hopping onto the wireless here and explaining what those three categories are? Yes, so we're going to start at the bottom. So the bottom is Cinebust. That is the category where you would not recommend that movie to anybody. It is just a flop. Next, we have Cinetrust. That is a group of movies that you would recommend to a certain group of people, so it's not for everybody. And then at the top, we've got Cinemust, which means that you would recommend that movie to everyone. Well done, babe. And you, I'd like you to know you're the first person in the history of the show to start from the bottom up. Way to yes. go. Yes. <laughs> Trendsetter. Gonna be, you're going to be running things someday. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for explaining the categories, babe. Before we offer our take on which of those we believe today's films belong in, we first need to reveal which category our listeners have decided last episode's movies deserve. Did the philosophically exhausting tales of greed and success, There Will Be Blood, and The Wages of Fear obtain official must-see status? Let's find out right now. All right, so it is my great pleasure to welcome back in the studio tonight, host of our last episode, Mr. Jonathan Smith. Jonathan, how have the roads been treating you? Wait, I can't hear you. I gotta get this oil out of my ear. And you still got the dynamite and the cigarette right next to each other. Do you ever put those things down? No. It helps me remember my own mortality. And that's what we really try to do with this show, so I'm glad that we can accommodate Jonathan, you and I uh, had such a, an existential nihilistic discussion last episode discussing There Will Be Blood and The Wages of Fear. We put it to our listeners to have the final say on if those movies are going to make the list of absolutely essential cinema. So now it behooves us to reveal how they have voted. Would you please do the honors and let us know how these movies have fared? First, we'll start with Wages of Fear, which has officially been voted by the viewers, by you, Cinemust. Nice. Pretty high amount of haven't seen it, haven't seen it on this one. So get out there and see Wages of Fear if you haven't yet. What's the what's the percentage breakdown on that? Oh, the whole breakdown. Okay, so we got that's the that's the people who haven't seen. It. I don't know. You can give the whole breakdown if you want. Twenty three percent of people who voted hadn't seen it. Okay, About those twenty three percent need to see it. Well, officially now because it's a cinema must. Everyone who has seen it has decided Missing it's a movie out. everybody should see. Okay, and for the second one, we have There Will Be Blood has also been voted an overwhelming cinema must. As we might have expected. How overwhelming was that margin? 85%. Yeah, nice. And that includes the 7% that haven't seen it. 
Okay, so an another group of people that absolutely, if you're one of those people who hadn't seen There Will Be Blood at the time of voting, we highly recommend it now because your peers have decided it's a movie that absolutely everybody should see. And uh, we got we got a couple comments, not as many as we maybe expected for There Will Be Blood, but a, a decent number, so I thought we could just take a second to read off some of the comments that uh, some of the voters left on why they voted the way they did. And uh, we should start with wages. I know that uh, the comments we got for wages come from both of our friends, Adam St. John and Ian Woodington, who run our brother podcast, A Thousand One by One. They also have a great episode on the wages of fear. Um, so they just wanted to reiterate some things that they took away when they discussed when they discussed the movie. So I wonder if you could read uh, Adam's comment first. Yep. So Adam said, The Wages of Fear is a wonderfully taught thriller that will keep you engaged throughout. Each set piece finds an exciting and interesting way of keeping the plot moving. And while the end of the movie leaves something to be desired, how we get there more than makes up for it. I know we have a quick rebuttal to that, but I also wanted to read Ian's comment because it, uh, it follows the same vein. And Ian, Ian's got a little more brimstone in him, which is what I love about him. Uh, Mr. Ian Woodington said of The Wages of Fear, Clouseau definitely deserves to be mentioned alongside Hitchcock, but the end is a big letdown. I'd like to see it end with Yves collapsing in front of the fire and not with him acting like a total prick on the road after this mammoth journey and the filmmakers trying to call that irony. Doesn't have to be a happy or an ambiguous ending, but it deserves better than that tripe. Still a must-see regardless. So Jonathan, this was a, a big component of the discussion we had on Wages of Fear. We said the difference between someone voting this a Cinemust or a Cinetrust is likely going to be the first hour or the last three minutes. And for these two guys, it appears to be those last three minutes. And before we went on mic, you said you had just a, a quick little rebuttal off of this. I still stand by my original comments from the, from the episode that I think that this the ending is essential to the film and perfectly in line with Mario's character. Very nice. I stand, by, I, I stand by mine too that it's, it's bothersome to me, but I think that with a little better editing, not quite so drawn out, it could be good. Yeah. But I do like what Ian said there, uh, and it echoes something I said that, the movie's still a must-see. Like, the preceding 90 minutes is an absolute masterpiece. It's immensely tension-ridden. Um, these do not sink the movie at all, but it is still something that leaves a lot of people cold. That makes sense. I can understand that. Yeah, totally. And the, the last thing we have on Wages of Fear is, uh, is we did put out a, t a poll on Twitter to ask people which of the four major set pieces of the Wages of Fear were their favorites. The winner is the second obstacle that the trucks face. The rickety platform overwhelmingly was was voted the best sequence of the movie. Interesting. That was picked over the, uh, I think you and me both decided the blowing up the rock was ours. Yeah, the rock but would, th I can totally see why the bridge won the vote. Yeah, the rock would still be my vote, but I mean, the bridge, is, the bridge is so good, man. I mean, yeah, it, it, everyone's a winner, but uh, yeah, the rickety platform, definitely the highlight. So if you're one of those people who hasn't seen Wages of Fear, we now recommend you get it on your watch list and look forward to the second obstacle, the rickety platform that is uh, Twitter's favorite, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so let's move over to some comments for There Will Be Blood. Hey, loyal listeners, you know what that record scratch sound is. That is the sound of technical difficulties. We unfortunately have lost Jonathan's half of the conversation reading the comments for There Will Be Blood. He has gone home for the night, but I did obtain his blessing to reread the comments that we got for There Will Be Blood to give shout outs to those voters and what they think of the movie. So our first comment on There Will Be Blood comes from Chris Watt on Twitter who says the number one reason that everyone should see it would be to marvel at the sheer confidence P.T. Anderson has in his vision. It's a rare example of a film that harks back to the glory days of the golden era Hollywood while feeling utterly contemporary. In short, a piece of pure cinema. Our second comment on Twitter comes from our friend Peterson Hill, who says the number one reason that it's a must-see is that it's a movie that has entered the conversation as a purely American masterpiece. It will likely go down as one of the great works of a great director. 
I think to be part of any contemporary movie conversation, you need this film in your vocabulary, full stop. And our last comment once again comes from our friend Adam St. John from the 1000 by 1 podcast who said, There Will Be Blood was a huge turning point for PTA. Daniel Day-Lewis gives the best performance of his career and the moment he leaves his son on the train is heart-wrenching. While I prefer Magnolia and Boogie Nights, it's clear that There Will Be Blood is the most well-made movie in PTA's repertoire. All fantastic comments. Thank you, guys. The votes have backed up your enthusiasm for the movie There Will Be Blood, a movie the vast majority of our listeners have decided is essential viewing along with The Wages of Fear. So we are going to get those right onto the list of essential cinema and want to thank you all once again for your comments and votes. So thank you again, our friends Adam St. John and Ian Woodington from the 1000 by 1 podcast, as well as Peterson Hill and Chris Wyatt. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to leave comments, and thank all of you for taking the time to visit cinemas.com to cast your vote for these movies. While this poll for There Will Be Blood and the Wages of Fear is going to be closed down now, we are opening up a new poll with this new episode you're listening to right now, so make sure that you go to episode 45's post at cinemas.com to cast your vote to decide if either, both, or neither of the films that we're discussing tonight will make that list of must-see movies. So one last time, a thank you to Jonathan Smith for coming back into the studio to record the results. So sorry, technical difficulties cut him off halfway through, but we will be delighted to have him back. And I will not delay us any further. I'm going to kick the episode proper back to Amanda, who is going to tell us what the two films we are discussing tonight are and why we chose them. We, one of the movies is a movie I've loved since my childhood. The Lion King is one of the movies we're talking about tonight. The second one is The King's Speech. And why did we choose those? Well, I chose Lion King. And we were going to do Hamlet, <laughs> and then we realized it wasn't in the book. Yes, yeah, some, some bonehead erroneously announced last time that we were going to pair up The Lion King with Hamlet. A pairing, it should be known, I have been so excited about since before this show even started. It was like one of those, like, someday we will do these two, because I was confident that ha- the 1948 Hamlet was in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I could, like, see it in my mind on the page. <laughs> And uh, then about two days ago, we realized it's never been in there. So we need to switch it up because, of course, we only talk about two movies that are in the book or we talk about two movies that are not. So we cannot mix and match. So sorry to everybody who is looking forward to us talking about Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. Uh, We think people will be okay with the substitution because The Lion King is the real star here. We have also opted to pick this movie for this time because along with knowing we were going to do The Lion King at some point, of course, there was nobody I would rather talk about The Lion King with. And I figured the best time for Amanda and I to talk about it is on the eve of the the quote-unquote live-action remake coming out from Disney. That is due this week, so we thought we would do this ahead of it so we aren't bogged down with comparing the animated version to this new version. We can just talk about the animated version. Yes. So let's get right into it. So for anybody who's new to the show, Amanda and I are going to take a couple of minutes to be totally spoiler-free and give our general impressions and votes of each movie. So we are basically going to be selling these movies to anybody who's never seen them or maybe never heard of them. And to do that, we're going to give a little plot summary, and we're going to vote both films into one of the three categories that Amanda just described, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And along with that, each of us will give three reasons apiece for why we vote the movie into the category that we do. Once we've done that for both movies, we'll lay down a spoiler warning so that if you haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it in a long time and want to revisit it, you have a nice clean spot to stop the show, go watch the movies, and come back before we get more in depth to the points that we made. 
So Amanda, we always start with the oldest movies from 1994, Disney's The Lion King. What is that movie about? Obviously, it is a well-known and loved Disney movie that tells the story of a young lion cub, Simba, played by Matthew Broderick. Simba, a highly confident young lion, enjoys getting into trouble with his good friend Nala. Despite being repeatedly reprimanded by his father Mufasa, the king of Pride Rock, Simba always manages to get himself into dangerous predicaments. After a devastating accident, Simba runs away and leaves the rule of Pride Rock to his uncle Scar, voiced by Jeremy Irons. Simba finds unlikely friends Timon and Pumbaa and tries to hide from his past until he sees that even though the past can hurt, you can either run from it or learn from it. And Mike, how would you vote Lion King? I am going to vote The Lion King an absolute cinema must. I think everyone should see this movie. I think most everyone already has seen this movie, which makes my if job... You, a t- if you haven't, repent. Oh my goodness. Well, I think that that kind of lays down how you're going <laughs> to vote it, but before we can make that official, I got to give you my three reasons. I think it's a movie absolutely everybody must see. My first one, I think this is a simple yet epic and profound coming-of-age story. True to the Disney animated catalog. Great movie for kids. Very profound, very deep but still pretty easy to explain. Uh, My second reason, especially in this era, Disney is known for impressive voice acting, but I think this is one of their most impressive voice casts. I think everybody in this movie is bringing it to their role. I think that there is possibly only one dud in the whole group, but even then, I think he's only a dud in like a certain section of the movie and he rocks it the rest of the time. So that will, that's kind of my blanket statement to say I love everybody who's in this movie, and I think they all give amazing performances. And thirdly, uh, the music collaboration. Disney's well-known for their musicals. The, the 90s is an era marked with just one show-stopping number after another in all of their movies. This one is a little unique in that the Disney Renaissance was usually like the, the Alan Menken-Howard Ashman thing. Alan Menken would write the scores. Howard Ashman would write the lyrics. They did it for Little Mermaid. They did it for Beauty and the Beast and a little bit for Aladdin before Howard Ashman unfortunately passed away. And then they started bringing in new lyricists, but Mencken still wrote the scores. Alan Mencken actually made the Academy create a separate musical score category for a couple of years because they were so tired of him winning every time a new Disney movie came out. But The Lion King is so special, it doesn't involve Mencken at all. This movie features songwriting collaborations from none other than Elton John, and Broadway lyricist Tim Rice with South African composer Lebo M, who does some of the choral arrangements. And the song collaborations between those three guys meet what I consider to be Hans Zimmer's best score. So this movie it kind of sticks out in terms of Disney musicals. I don't know that it has all my favorite songs from the Disney musicals of the 90s, but musically it's just such an interesting movie for this era, and I, I probably have already talked way too much about it. Those are my three reasons. Amanda, you have hinted quite heavily, I think, at how you're going to vote for this movie, but let's make it official. What do you think The Lion King deserves? My five-year-old self would say it is a cinemust, and my 26-year-old self would call it a cinemust. <laughs> would your 26-year-old self call it more or less of a cinemust? Uh, maybe more. Okay, impressive. So it sounds like you would have hundreds of reasons, but if you had to narrow it down to just three reasons why everybody should see this movie, what would they be? Okay, so I guess we just have to open it and just say the freaking opening scene. All right. That alone is just musically powerful. It's impactful. All these animals gathering. It's fantastic. All right. One five-minute sequence, one-third of the reason everyone should see this movie. I love it. How about the other two? All of the characters are fantastic. We have 
fairly large group of um, main characters slash side main characters, and they're all great. I was thinking about that maybe this is one of the best character development blendings into the storyline, that they kind of seamlessly just work together to give you backstory about the characters and also progress the storyline. The last one, we ha- it's quick-witted and tightly written dialogue that entertains the whole through the whole movie. That's impressive. Disney animated movies are not typically lauded for their dialogue. I'm kind of impressed that between the both of us, neither of us has really talked a lot about the animation itself. I mean, it, it features kind of into one of my points, but this is impressive that The Lion King is special enough that the things that stick out most to us are outside of like kind of the obvious thing of like, just look at it, look at how it's drawn. It's amazing. So this is really cool. But let's just take a quick moment to say it is beautifully animated. Yeah. I mean, in such a simple way. It, it goes without saying. Yeah, totally True. agreed. So we'll, we'll make that reason 3.5 for the both of us. I mean, come on, absolutely gorgeous animation at the, the height of the studio's prime in this, in this uh, particular era. Okay, so how about we move over really quick to The King's Speech. The best picture winner from 2010, uh, and I've got the plot summary for this, is based on the true story of King George VI, who is played in this movie by Colin Firth, whose reluctant ascension to the throne of England in the years leading up to World War II was complicated by the frivolous rule of his brother, King Edward VIII, played by Guy Pearce, and a severe stammer that impeded his ability to speak publicly. So in this film, to unleash his voice and become the king his country needs, King George will need the help of iconoclastic and unorthodox speech therapist Lionel Logue, played by Jeffrey Rush, and the undying love and support of his wife, the future Queen Elizabeth, played by Helena Bonham Carter. Not Queen Elizabeth II, who currently acts as monarch to the United Kingdom, that this is actually her mother. So we have kind of a cool link to history that we're only about a generation away from from this story still. So, Amanda, um, if I before I get your votes really quick, I always like to ask this question of more recent movies. What's your history with The King's Speech? Had you seen it before uh, pre- prepping for the show? Um, I'd seen it once before, so fairly new to me. Okay, cool. So pretty fresh take. So I am very curious then, how are you going to vote for The King's Speech? Uh, it took me a little bit of time to figure this out. Um, and it is just barely a cinemust for me. Okay, soft cinemust. All right, what are your three reasons why? The first one is that it's a touching based on a true story movie. I'm a sucker for these historical movies. Obviously, Hollywood has a track record for making it a little bit more dramatic than it actually is. So obviously, there are some aspects that aren't historically very accurate. But overall, we have a based on a true story movie, which um, is really nice. True. And, and to just give you a little like movie nerd, I'm going to push my glasses up. Technically not a Hollywood production. This movie comes at us from the UK, though heavily, heavily influenced by the Weinstein Company, who got it packaged and got it all its Oscars. So there, there is some involvement, but this is largely actually an English-made movie. Okay, yeah. I'm no historian, so. <laughs> okay, so number two reason is that Jeffrey Rush, who plays Lionel, the speech therapist, absolutely stills the show. I think his performance is fantastic. And he is just a funny, uh, unforgettable character. And then the last one is that I think this movie has a nice message about the importance of friends um, and also kind of letting go of your past and moving forward with newer, better, more important things. Yeah, a a connection it actually shares with The Lion King to to maybe justify why we plug this in (laughs) in the place of Hamlet. We thought that the movies actually do have 
a lot in common. So I like that. That's something I zoned in on for a while. It wasn't just because they both have the the word lion. Uh, excuse me. They don't. <laughs> oh boy. It's not just because both of them have the word king in the title. There's more to the link. Yeah, we, we did go down that road when we were listing out possibilities. One we thought of was uh, the African queen so that we had movies with three word titles that had a king or queen. In them. Yes, Mike, how would you vote a king's speech? Well, I'm in the exact same boat as you that I wrestled a lot with this. And like you, I am going to vote the king's speech a soft cinema must. I really, really liked this movie. Um, we're going to talk about some things about it that like could maybe have netted it in the Cinetrust zone for us. But overall, there's really nobody I wouldn't recommend the movie to. And I think it is a pretty great movie. I'll get it out of the way right here. Maybe the biggest problem with this movie is that it has the grave misfortune of having stolen most of the major Oscars away from the social network, which has history has shown is really the movie that deserved to clean up on Oscar night. So it takes best picture from social network. It takes Best Director from David Fincher. Best Actor, I think, is still a toss-up. We will talk about that a little more. But, you know, Social Network got blasted out by King's Speech, and that has just um, turned us all against the King's Speech. So the nice thing about this show is we kind of are now going to push that to the side. We are considering the King's Speech on its own as a movie to see if it stood the last nine years and is still worth seeing. And I still think it is. I think it's still a really great movie. Um, and the three reasons that I, that I zeroed in on are pretty similar to yours. The first one, to get at a, a major theme of the movie, is that I think that it presents an inspiring story with an incredibly relevant message. It's asking the question, what makes a good leader? I think that that is still an incredibly relevant question to be asking. And I think that this movie, uh, while presenting us a little bit of history, uh, also says some pretty profound things about that. So that's the first reason I think it's worth seeing. Second reason is a little more personable to me. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, of the historical drama, period pieces, you know, a lot of the parlor dramas, things about royalty. It's usually not my thing. I like that this movie is taking the, the World War II period drama and making it a buddy movie. I think it's doing some fun things structurally. And while it does that a little formulaically, I think it's massively entertaining. And as I mentioned, still kind of teaching you a little bit of history. So I think it's endlessly watchable in like that subgenre of uh, like parlor drama, historical fiction. And uh, the third reason I'm syncing up with you a lot on this one, the performances from those buddies. So you called out Jeffrey Rush as Lionel Logue. He is absolutely fantastic. I am also going to give this to Colin Firth, who won Best Actor for his portrayal of King George VI. I think that a lot of what Colin Firth does in this movie transcends a lot of the cliches of like this type of role. Uh, because something we were talking about off mic before we started is how many of like the check boxes from the this is what you do to earn an Oscar list this movie checks off, which I think is honestly kind of a reason it could have gone into Cine Trust territory for both of us. Would you agree? For sure. That it's not that there's like anything wrong with it. It's kind of just like it seems designed just to win Oscars. Which it did. Uh, yeah, and, and it paid off for them. Um, I do. I still really, really like the movie. I think... Um, when you consider like movies that won best picture that you don't personally agree with, I think there's two subcategories. There's the ones that are like, well, that just clearly did not deserve to win. And then there's the ones that are like, that's not what I think should have won, but I'm, I guess it, I'm okay with it. It's a good enough movie. I think the King's speech while kind of lower in that second category is still in there. I'm okay with this movie cleaning up as it did in award season. And I think again, removed from that where 
the sting has maybe worn off a little, maybe not. I, I think it's a really great movie, and I'm super excited to talk about all the greatness in it as well as a couple of its flaws. So I think I've kind of already backed myself into the defensive corner on that. So maybe <laughs> so before we move into to fleshing all those points out and getting into the meat of the discussion, Amanda, are there any final things that you would say to somebody who has maybe never seen or heard of either of these movies to convince them that they are worth seeing? Because we do have a 100% recommendation from both of us on both of them. I would just say if you haven't seen them, go watch them. I guess that's it. <laughs> oh, and we, we have given six reasons apiece for each movie why. And I think we could probably give a couple more at least for Lion King. So, yeah, we highly recommend everybody go check these movies out before casting their vote at Cinemus.com. But, of course, listeners are going to have the final say on if either, both, or neither of them are going to make that list. But um, let's maybe try to back up the points we made a little more in depth by going into spoilers for The Lion King. Father? forgotten me no how could i you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me look inside yourself simba you are more than what you have become you must take your place in the circle of life how can i go back i'm not who i used to be remember who you are you are my son and the one true king No, please, don't leave me. Father. Don't leave me. So, Amanda, I loved your logic when we were in general impressions. Your very first reason why you think everyone should see The Lion King is that opening scene. You're starting with the very beginning, and now that we... I guess we didn't really have to get into spoilers since it's the first five minutes of the movie anyways, but please tell me why is... The Circle of Life sequence from The Lion King, a third of the reason why everyone should see it to you. I think the major part of that piece that makes it so powerful is the music. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was the first take they did on the music. Yeah, so there's, there's a fun story. So this will tie into my third reason about the, the collaboration. There's a story that goes around that Elton John and Tim Rice have written the song Circle of Life, and it's kind of like the Elton John ballad that you hear. So it's up to Hans Zimmer to kind of compose it and get it right for that opening sequence because they're not going to have Elton John sing it. They're going to have Lebo M, who is the South African songwriter that I mentioned, who collaborated a lot on getting what Hans Zimmer called like the authentic African voice and sound into the music. And apparently Lebo M was a guy like living in poverty. Like this was still him kind of trying to make a name for himself. And apparently Hans Zimmer had no idea where to find him. And on a, the documentary we watched, like the retrospective, Hans Zimmer's like at three o'clock, the producers were coming by and I had nothing to give him. I just had music and they were expecting this full song. And then he says that afternoon, Lebo showed up, just marched into the studio. And he said, OK, let's do it. Popped in the headphones. And that very first sound you hear, the, the ever-famous Nazaganya, that's just him. Like, walked into the studio, put on headphones, did it. It's first take, first try, and it's in the movie. Isn't that incredible? That's like, amazing. That, it just, like, you just have, like, this connection to African culture with that song. And it just, the gathering of all of the animals to come to this 
I guess, is it a christening, basically? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Of this lion cub who is Simba. It just is, just gets you pumped and it's just so powerful and you can just feel it. And I, like I said, I think a lot of that has to do with because it's in the music. You just feel that power in the music. Um, and then it like, as soon as the song ends, you have that like. Oh, the perfect that everybody like slaps their knee to. Yes, everybody like, knows the timing signature. of it. Yeah. And I think it gives you a nice opening to it gives you um, basically it gives you like the situational like what's going on. And it's very quick. It. I don't know. It, I guess it, what I'm trying to say is that it gives us the setting. It gives us the main character. It gives us um, the parameters of kind of what's going on a little bit within like what, how long is that song? Like it's super quick. Yeah. Four or five minutes. Yeah. Like, and it's, you just get so excited to watch whatever is coming up next. And that um, honestly, there's no better way to start a movie than to get your viewer excited to see what ha- is going to happen next. And I think they did it perfectly. There's, Nothing wrong with that scene, period. Yeah, I agree. It's it's so good. It was just the trailer for the movie. Like they had it done and they decided, let's just put this out as the trailer. There's no explanation. There's no dialogue. Like to me, this this opening scene is so impressive where it stands in Disney history and especially the, the 90s Renaissance history, because it's kind of the only one up to this point that doesn't start with like the once upon a time thing. And I don't have a problem with the once upon a time thing. Um, I'm heartbroken that Beauty and the Beast, my personal favorite Disney movie and probably personal favorite animated film of all time, isn't in there. But it, it opens the same way. Once upon a time, there w- there was a prince. And, you know, Little Mermaid does kind of does that. And Aladdin even does that. Lion King just opens and it's dialogue free. It's just visual storytelling that is immediately letting you into this epic scope, which is one of the the first reasons I had. I, I kind of tied the epic scope into the coming-of-age story, but that's really another thing that makes Lion King so special is it's huge. <laughs> it's this, like, David Lean-esque epic in still kind of like a fantasy version of the African savanna. Like, it's to me, it's kind of weird, like, the ways in which the Lion King tries to be accurate to how nature really works and the other times it just absolutely ignores it. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not going to nitpick that, like, this isn't how hyenas really are, because it's, it's a movie about talking African animals. So but um, it, there it does like you're right. It captures that sense of setting of being in this place that is kind of of our world, but still a fantasy version of it. Sure. as Only mm-hmm. Disney can do. Uh, I agree. I think the, the opening sequence is so perfect and really something special among Disney films and honestly, like all animated movies. Yeah. So you talked briefly about the music. And since we've kind of touched base on that, do you want to just dive into the music? Yeah, I feel I feel bad because I feel like I honestly made a lot of my points just in general impressions and the history of like, are, are you kidding me? You, you've got Elton John writing songs with Tim Rice. And I'll admit I'm not a Broadway guy. I don't know a ton of Tim Rice's work outside of what he's done for the Disney catalog. But you got those two guys together writing all the songs. You've got Lebo M coordinating on it to make sure it has an authentic African voice in it so that it's not just whitewashing, um, though that is an issue we'll probably get into a little later. Um, I think maybe the thing I said that was the most controversial that uh, some people may not have even made it this far in the episode because they clicked the episode off as soon as I said it. I think this is Hans Zimmer's best score. And he's got a lot of great ones, but I can't think of a score he's done that has more iconic themes that are just instantly hummable, stick in your mind, and that still 
contribute to the emotion of every scene that they're in. Like they, they themselves, like you said, with the circle of life sequence are epic in that scope, but he also, you know, he knows how to do something that's like really fun and bouncy with like the intros of Timon and Pumbaa. He has sinister stuff with Scar and the hyenas. Like the, the movie is called Shakespearean because it's like Shakespeare for kids. It's, it's kind of Hamlet. I mean, that's why we originally wanted to pair it with Hamlet. We thought it'd be fun, but I'm not going to die by like, it's an exact adaptation because it takes a lot of liberties but the musical score even feels like kind of shakespearean to me um and i just think like it's so cool to have those four guys all working together and like i mentioned i think that that's just such an interesting move for this era of disney animation which like i said was primarily alan menken doing scoring and you know it started with him working with howard ashman and then he went to work with steven schwartz i think he worked with tim rice a couple like it was always just alan menken and then for the lion king it was like, well, uh, why don't we get Hans Zimmer? He's kind of like a young up and coming guy. And uh, man, that move really, really paid off, which is another thing I think is so interesting about this movie is that it was for a long time considered the B movie on the slate because it went into production about the same time as Pocahontas did. And everybody thought that Pocahontas was going to be the big thing, like they thought it was a much more volatile story and that it was going to take off. So tons of the studios like head animators went over to work on Pocahontas and allegedly Rob Minkoff and Roger A- Roger Allers I think is the other director's name they had to apparently beg people to come and animate on The Lion King and then it just completely flopped that The Lion King is now if not everybody's favorite Disney movie like it consistently cracks like the top five I think for inc- sure including yourself uh number one Disney movie for me that's always has been I love it and you know not not to throw you under the bus and I know it's always hard for you to decide you've talked about a lot of movies already on this show that you think are in like your top three your top five favorite movies of all time I've, kn- I've known you a couple a, a little while I think <laughs> I know you pretty well I think The Lion King is your favorite movie ever period I have a hard time deciding what my favorite movie is so Maybe I'll let Mike decide for me, and there <laughs> I, you have it. <laughs> I, I think it is. You've shown a lot of love for a lot of movies, but I don't think I've seen you just light up for a movie more than you've lit up for Lion King. Which, the music is a big part of that. Watching this, it had been a while since I had watched this movie, um, but watching it in preparation for this show or for this episode, it was just like, it takes you back to your childhood and in just such a way that you feel loose and comfortable and you just want to sing and dance to the music. Like... As an adult who, I mean, we all have things going on and sometimes life is, is so stressful, but all of a sudden, like, watching that movie just felt like you wanted to sing and dance and it just brings you back to your childhood and there's, like, no greater feeling than that. Yeah. So I think the music is very powerful in that way where it connects us back and it's just so fun to sing along to. It really is. So, so to get away from Hans Zimmer's score, do you have a favorite song in the movie? <sighs> Well, I just admitted to being indecisive, so <laughs> um, gosh, it might be Circle of Life just because it's so powerful, but Akuna Matata, fantastic. Okay, I do have to say for the longest time, the gonna be a mighty king Oh yeah, song. I just can't wait to be king. Uh, yes, I thought that that <laughs> said, gonna be a lion king. Um, so you thought for- it was saying the name of the movie. <laughs> Yes, so I still sing it like that. Um, anyways, I can't I'm really decide. sorry how much I've teased you. That this only came out like the last week that this, and I've just relentlessly teased Amanda about it. Anyways, I don't think I could pick a favorite song. They're all good. 
all the titles are just escaping my brain right now, but um after that we have Be Prepared. Be prepared, Scar's yes. Song. That one it's not my favorite for sure, but it's still like a really good Good bad guy song. Yeah. Like it just introduces you to how bad Scar is. Like we don't really see much of his evilness, I guess, before then. Yeah, he he keeps things really cool, playing yeah. it playing it really close. You can only tell there's something smoldering, and that's right. his chance to finally let it out and show you what he's about. Yeah, and it I I think you see that through that music. Like you just you understand where he's coming from. You understand that he is evil. Um. Anyways, I can't decide which one of which song is my favorite. They're all good. Do you have a favorite song? I think Circle of Life overall is my favorite. I tend to go for like the big sweeping ones, but I was really surprised how into I Just Can't Wait to Be King I was. Like, as soon as that beat gets laid down, I, I was with you. I was hopping around, and we sung through that whole song. It is absolutely delightful. But yeah, I don't think there's a dud in the entire song list here. I do think it's cute how all the animals come together for that song to, like, put together this big thing for Simba and Nala to try and get away from Zazu. They're loyal to their they, prince. Yeah. like Because his dad will eat them if they aren't. <laughs> That is true, but anyways, yeah, that's such a good a good song. So there's a theme that's coming through that is actually your second point. We are talking a lot about how these songs reflect characters, and your second point, why it's a movie everyone should see, is just that all the characters are fantastic, and you said that it might be one of the best uh, iterations of character developments blending into the storyline, and I wondered if you could kind of go into a little more of what you mean by that. Um, I think um, I just can't wait to be king and um, be prepared are perfect examples of that in just can't wait to be king. Um, Simba talks about how someday he's going to be a mighty king. He kind of gives off the impression that he is. I don't know if I would say cocky, but maybe a little cocky. Oh, I would. Okay. Yeah, very cocky, very full of self-importance and entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that just kind of sets the tone for who he is and what's not necessarily what's going to happen to him, but some of that overconfidence kind of leads to troubles down the way. Mm -hmm. And then also with be prepared, like we kind of already talked about, it just kind of sets a tone for what, um, who Scar is. And obviously at that point, we don't know what his plan is to try. And it's very obvious he wants to take over the kingdom. Mm of Pride Rock. So it's very obvious that's what he wants to do. And he doesn't tell us what is going to happen in the song, but directly after he says we're going to, when he's I mean, talking to the hyenas. I mean, he does before the song or in the middle of the song when he says we're going to kill Mufasa and Simba too. Okay. My mistake. No, yeah. You know what I like about both those songs is that I think they're actually mirrors of each other. They, they, they both show that, that same kind of cockiness and entitlement that comes from being a part of the royal line. And that's one thing that I really like about The Lion King is how tight of a story it is and how as the movie progresses and Simba has parted ways from the the Pride Lands and we get like that really, really brief glimpse of how the Pride Lands have fared under Scar and it's it's totally just Macbeth. It's just like even the land itself has just rotted away under this guy's rule. And I like that the movie points out that Scar is the king that Simba has set out to be when he's singing the fun, bouncy, I just can't Mm -hmm. wait to be king number that it's all about me it's all about how great i am and we're just gonna do things my way it's gonna be fun because i'm in the spotlight and that is totally what scar is there's a line and be prepared 
towards the end as he's rising up in that pillow of, pillar of fire where he talks about, I will finally be seen for the wonder I am. Mm. He's so, you know, he's, again, so self-involved. And, you know, you, you notice it more in Scar because he has the bad guy song, but all of that is there. And I just can't wait to be king. And so the movie is about Simba letting go of that part of himself, of growing up. Of, and that's where I think it's a coming of age story, which we, we can talk about later. I just, while we were talking about those two songs, I think it's so fun how one is such this bouncy, fun song. And the other one is this like gloomy, like people you love are about to get murdered, but they have such similar messages to show why these characters are so great to be pitted against each other. Yeah, that's that's a really good reading on that. Um, going back to why I think the f- characters are fantastic, how could we not mention Timon and Pumbaa with Hakuna, Hakuna? Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> I think that does the same thing. It tells you who they are. They're fun, carefree, doing whatever they want, eating bugs type of people. And I don't know, it just is such a fun way to introduce the character still moving forward the the storyline because obviously that's the story or we see Simba aging the mm. classic oh that gives me chills every time walking across that log and he gets older and older so like it just is like the perfect way to still tell you what's happening and still tell you um the storyline and develop those characters in a very simple way it's just so fun to see that and it's so quick to tell you the storyline And I've kind of come around to like the brilliance of that sequence in a lot of ways, because at first I thought it was just like the Elton John wanted to write his version of the bare necessities. So here's Akuna Matata. But looking at where that comes in the story, it's so brilliant because it not only is a chance to bring the audience back up after what has got to be one of the most heart wrenching moments in a kids slash family movie ever with the death of Mufasa, complete with actually seeing the body and a solid like minute and a half of his son trying to wake him up and dealing with the guilt that it might have been his fault and when he finally just crawls under his paw because he doesn't want to go anywhere he's lost his dad it's oh it's so crushing i know that it is a purposeful reflection of the death of bambi's mother i think this one is even more devastating because of how we've gotten to get to know mufasa who i would posit is one of cinema's absolute greatest dads ever to go from all of that depression and darkness into a fun, bouncy number. But it's not just that it's sequentially like bringing the, the good vibes back up. That's also a message that an impressionable kid at that age who's just been through trauma like that would latch on to. What? There's this philosophy that I can forget everything, that I don't have to have responsibility or face anything. I can just be out for myself. Well, and I, I think that ties into my other point as well, that it's it's very tightly written Mm -hmm. and that i mean it's an hour and 30 minutes or so something like that like they have no extra time to waste on certain things so i think it has to be it has to serve a purpose every word has to uh, which i think it does like i feel like you're either getting a joke from timon and pumbaa or you're getting some type of story um, progressing statement from a character so you're just entirely entertained by all these awesome characters I mean, we could name them all. I think the hyenas do an awesome job. Um, Shenzi, Bonsai, and Ed, they cactus butt, like just everything. <laughs> like, I, So I'm glad you brought that joke up because it's such like a one aside dumb kids joke. But I, I can honestly use that to make my point about like this being one of Disney's most impressive voice cast because 
We have Cheech Marin as Bonsai. We have Whoopi Goldberg as Shenzi. And then Jim Cummings is doing Ed, who is an unfortunate character because he just speaks in crazy babble talk. I'd like to get back to that. But they're, they're the dumb henchman characters. But even Whoopi Goldberg's delivery of the cactus butt line, it's just so perfect. It's one of those lines, like you mentioned, you, you hear it as a kid and it just stays with you through however many decades. And it's still so funny how she does the cactus butt. Yeah, I just I'm in love with all the characters. And there's well, so much to say about them. you were not super crazy about Scar when I told you that he might be my favorite. True. Um, I am just a big fan of Mufasa. So when you said that Scar was your favorite character, I'm like, but what about Mufasa? <laughs> <laughs> Even you, you knew I was sick when you married me. <laughs> I always forget the mom's name. Sarabi. Sarabi. In another fantastic line reading. Sarabi! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, I think even, we don't hear a lot from Sarabi, um, but, like, at the end when she's just talking to Scar, and Scar's like, like, you're supposed to be bringing us all the food, and she's like, there is no food. Like, she's just telling him off, and, like, you've ruined this beautiful kingdom. Like, it just, I don't know, everything that any character says, I just feel like serves a purpose, and um, I love that. Do you feel... That this movie has wisdoms to, to lay out to, to generations both young and old. Um, I feel like it has wisdoms all over the place. So, so give me some of like your favorite wisdoms it has, because I agree, but I want to hear yours first. Okay, so I kind of use part of this in the plot summary. Yeah. So we're at the point where Rafiki comes to Simba, and he's trying to kind of help push him to go back to the kingdom. And he basically hits him over the head with um, his little stick. And he says, the past can hurt, but you can either run from it or learn from it. That's, I mean, super powerful and impactful thing for each of our lives. Like, same thing. Like, if we have something in our past, you either learn from it or run from it. I think Hakuna Matata has a lot of powerful things as well, because you can't always... Like, sometimes you just need to relax and just... Mm -hmm. Take a load off your shoulders and have fun. Yeah. Akuna Matata does have like some some good sporadic pieces of advice, but it's also kind of like an evil song at this like taken <laughs> to its extreme, like it's a really bad idea. Right, which I think we see that taken to the extreme, mm -hmm. which gets corrected. So I think it's okay. Cause we see that Timon and Pumbaa and Simba are all living that life of just kind of not doing anything. But um, anyways, obviously Simba comes back to rule, and like I said, that gets kind of corrected. Um, I feel like those are probably the top three like little wisdoms that you would get, but I think it also says something about um, how family is important, and how friends are important, and I don't know. They're, like I said, I think it is just full of... Lots of little wisdoms that you can pick up on. Do you have anything else to add to that? Well, yeah, and I think what I would have to add to that, because I agree with all of them, is uh, is my point about it being a coming-of-age story. And really, the, like, the first reason I had written down as soon as the movie was over, like, this is why I think this movie is so good, is the journey of Simba, like we were talking about, from, from childhood and being very self-absorbed and just interested in, like, I'm going to be so great. And I think that, that kids in a way can kind of relate to that because I think it's important we tell our kids like the potential that they have. 
I think sometimes that goes overboard and it can go to all of our heads. And I like that this movie filters or takes Simba through that journey of like, I do have great potential, but it's not about just me. And so the, the wisdoms that I, I lean in on are the teachings of Mufasa, those key like two or three scenes that we have with him about how there's more to being king than getting your way all the time. You have to be a protector. You have to exist in the balance. You can't just be at the head of the table. You are part of a circle. And I love that message that it lays out. And I love how the movie will take him through a, a period of his life, uh, which I, I personally have gone through and that I think maybe some other people have of just wasting away in your early 20s and just taking it a little <laughs> too easy um, and kind of running from anything that bears a semblance to responsibility and showing kids like that. That's a bad idea. Like you're wasting your potential and you have to go and face facts. You have to face the past. You have to do the hard things and step up to who you can really become which is all brought out in probably my favorite scene of the movie that makes me cry every time when Mufasa comes back. And I think it makes me cry because Hans Zimmer's score in that scene is so freaking good. But uh, the remember who you are. And I think that that's oh, like yeah. a mantra you can take with you, no matter who is, is remember who you are. And um, yeah, I, I think it's just that through line is so great. And it's a very simple through line, or it's a very simple message, but I think, I don't think that makes it any less important or like, easy to kiss off is like, oh, that's just some dumb thing from a kid's movie. Cause I think this is actually a great message for a kid's movie. And like great Disney movies, it doesn't shy away from some really dark stuff. Like we just talked about, we see a father who we have come to love and identify with. We see his corpse and his son interacting with that corpse and coming to the realization he has lost his hero. I like when Disney, I know that makes me sound like a psychopath, but I like when uh, Disney movies embrace that kind of darkness to bring us back up and show you can bounce back from that. You can fight evil, however you want to put it. You can come back, face responsibility. And uh, the, the last line I think contributes to this is the, the end fight when he's got Scar on the ropes and Scar very snivelingly is like, you wouldn't kill your own uncle. And Simba just gets to say, no, I'm not like you. I think that that's such a that's where, you know, that dichotomy of those two characters who start out with the exact same mindset of it's all about me and I'm so great and I'm so powerful mm. that Simba finally gets to say I'm not like you made problematic by him immediately repeating back a phrase that Scar had said earlier, the runaway and never return. That's a nitpick. It just always bugs me that he says I'm not like you and then immediately says word for word the thing that was told well, him as a child. But the way or the situation that he's saying it in is obviously different, which he, makes all the difference. It. When Scar said it, it was just to get him to go away so that he could be killed two minutes later. But Simba genuinely means like, get out and don't come back. Right. And I think, I think that's, even though it is something that the villain just stated or had stated earlier in the movie, it's still, to me, it's acceptable just because Scar had totally destroyed this, the beautiful Pride Lands. And it was so green when. Uh, Mufasa was in rule, but obviously Scar t turned that around and um, everybody was starving. And anyways, so I'm okay with that. Kind of even has like an eco message. You know, Mufasa's rule is dictated by the balance, the circle of life. And Scar's rule is everyone eats everything all the time. And Yeah, and I think we see anytime we see um, Scar when he is currently um, the ruler He's laying around doing absolutely nothing, singing about 
big one, small one, some <laughs> as big as your head. I guess that's technically Zazu singing, but still, like it's just like this laziness that is happening instead yeah, it's like of that like Roman emperor style. Yeah. yeah, which I think is kind of an interesting thing because at I mean we see. Simba and Scar both kind of living similar lifestyles that Mm -hmm. they're just like lazy, not doing much of anything, not making any great progress in their life. And thank goodness for Nala to, yeah, yeah, I guess bringing back Simba, we couldn't talk about Lion King without (laughs) mentioning Nala's doomy eyes. Oh. Oh my gosh. I've... We're, we're we're earning our explicit rating. Oh, like have the kids listen to the podcast about the Lion King, like earmuff them for ten seconds. I've seen movies where like naked people look at other people and say, "Hey, let's go." None of those parallel the doomy eyes that Nala flashes. It is the absolute most erotic moment I think I've ever seen in any movie ever. Yeah, sorry to you little kids, but it had to be said. <laughs> It's an impressive piece of animation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We didn't mention that song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Mm -hmm. Also really good song as well. winning song. Yeah, so couldn't forget that one. Really good love love ballad. I like the the animation in that sequence of like that Eden that they're in. And um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was very snarkly when you were talking earlier about like it takes... Or Simba's like wallowing and it takes like something to snap him out of it. I was going to jut in with like a snarky like, yeah, good loving will do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to swing back to characters because I've still got a little bit to say about the just the voice acting, because that's my point about the characters is I think everybody is bringing it in this movie. But I want to ask you, favorite character. I think it's Mufasa for me. Okay, it's so heartbreaking to see him die. But I think he's my favorite just because he totally cares about his family. He cares about the other animals and keeping the balance of the circle of life. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know, that just he kind of has all of his crap together. Yeah. And he's kind of perfect. Yeah. Like he's kind of like that too good to be true kind of thing. Mm. But um, obviously there's moments where he gets upset with Simba for not being very smart about what he's doing and you kind of see him you do we do see him get upset with Simba but he uses those moments to as teaching moments rather than just go sit in the corner and pout because you've done something wrong he teaches Simba to say like look what you did was not good and not only did it put you in danger it also put Nala in danger and or whatever the situation was I love and, that line he has. I'm only brave when I have to be. I was really scared today. And like that yes. that moment of Simba seeing like his dad who can do no wrong, who is all powerful, like he was scared. Right. Like, like that's, that's such a good moment. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's just like as someone who hopes to be a parent someday, it's just like this perfect, perfect parenting role model that just is like he loves his children or his child, I guess. And he realizes the need to discipline Simba. But he also uses that to teach and he just has a lot of wisdom and will go above and beyond for anybody in his kingdom. Um, Takes the time to play with his kids or to keep saying kids. You know, he's the only dude in that whole cave. Okay, he probably has (laughs) kids then. (laughs) 
Um, anyways. Sorry to break the magic. Once again. <laughs> again, like the, the ways in which this movie adheres to like reality and then like ignores it is just weird sometimes. Yeah. Anyways, he just like that moment where he's just teaching Simba to pounce. It just is fantastic. I just love Mufasa. Who's your favorite character? Well, I want to talk about Mufasa just just for a second, because I'm with you early on. Like one of my reasons legit was going to be Mufasa is the best movie dad like that there is. Um, and you pretty much just made that point for me. I think he's great. I love the balance he strikes between like we're pals and we're wrestling. But that moment is punctuated by a, a hard hitting discussion. We're we're always going to be together. Right. And Mufasa has to take that beat and say, well, let me tell you something my dad told me. And he goes on that beautiful speech about the old, the old kings of the past who live in the stars and that I may not always be here for you, but I'll always be with you. Which yeah. Is, which is, comes back to that. My favorite moment where he, where he does come back and you kind of chastises his son again. Like that's not like a, there, there, you made a mistake. It's, it's a speech about like, you're my son. You know who you are. Like get, get your crap together. Yeah. Is, is what it is. Um, James Earl Jones is so great as Mufasa. He's so good as Mufasa. As Mufasa, he's coming back to voice Mufasa in the the new Lion King that's coming out this week. Oh, like he owns this role so much that literally nobody else could do it. Good for him. Well, we we've talked about it. I think my favorite overall is Scar, and I feel like a psychopath because he's a despicable guy. But I I have a soft spot. Usually, if they're if they're good villains, the the Disney villains are usually my favorite characters. And I think Scar is one of the very best in large part because Jeremy Irons, I think, gives the performance of the movie with Scar. He is, you know, villains just get to savor it all. They get like all the fun line readings. They get to be bad. They get to have much more room to play around with. And Jeremy Irons just runs around with all of that. I think it's uh, I guess now is as good a time as ever to address some of the controversy and negative readings that you most certainly can have of this film. What Disney film can you not? It is unfortunate that Scar is coded the way he is, that he's the only dark brown lion hmm. who acts rather foppishly, almost in an openly gay manner, I would say. It's unfortunate that all of that gets packed into like, well, this is clearly the bad guy. Like him being the brown lion is visual shorthand for like, of course he's evil. Look at his scar. Um, so I get that that's problematic. I do also have to say, though, like, he is my favorite character. I think he's one of the best realized characters in the movie who gets not necessarily an arc. Like, he is who he is. But, you know, that that idea, you know, as a kid, I didn't zero in on that stuff. You know, as a kid, I was like, well, he's scrawny, so he's the brains. Like, he's going to use his smarts to get what he wants. Like, that's what I always got out of it. Uh, and I do also have to say, I think. Scar might get the best death out of any Disney villain ever. It's pretty dang good. I mean, you yeah. know, there's there's a lot of really great ones. There's a lot of people who fall to their death, get stabbed. But I mean, for him, because you think when he goes over to the cliff, you're like, poetic justice. He threw his brother off a cliff and now he does. It's great. But he survives the fall and you're like, huh. And then for him to get eaten up by his own people as that beautiful, yeah. like fl hellish flame rising shot in the foreground. It is so freaking good. Um, so yeah, I think, I think Scar is my favorite overall just because I have a soft spot for the villains when they're great. Scar is definitely like one of my three favorites. Uh, and he is despicable, no doubt about it. For sure. Uh, but just every, every time he's on screen, I'm just like, oh, I love him so much. But there's really not a character I don't like. I mentioned in general impressions, I think there's one dud in the cast. And it's Matthew Broderick as the adult Simba. 
But I do have to say it's it's just for this one section, but I think it's such an important section that it bums me that he doesn't quite live up to it. It is the the self-realization moment, the moment before his father appears back to him when he ta- when he's yelling, you said you'd always be there for me. To me, it just doesn't land. It seems a little more forced than I feel it should. But other than that, I think he's he's great as adult Simba. Literally everybody else, I'm just in love with their performance. I think Rowan Atkinson is untouchable as Zazu getting to do like the, the snobby English guy because we know him as Mr. Bean. So it's kind of fun because Mr. Bean's so easygoing to hear that <laughs> voice like in this very like in your face like rules and regulations and the monarchy. It's It's so good. We talked about the hyenas who are also very unfortunately coded. Um, but again, I, I love them as henchmen. I think that they're so good. Pumbaa. Yes. Timon. Yes. So we have Nathan Lane as Timon and Ernie Sabella as Pumbaa, guys who showed up auditioning to be hyenas and worked so well together that they were immediately cast as Timon and Pumbaa. And um, I was surprised. I thought when I asked you who your favorite character was, you were going to say Pumbaa because you were so happy when they showed up halfway through the movie i was i he's kind of pumbaa's the character that you just love and you don't have tons of reasons why i mean he's just like it's the fart jokes i guess no (laughs) i don't know he just is like that goofy like chubby funny character that is just gold yeah you just love him and I I felt like Mufasa had a lot more like good quality things to like. Yeah. Oh, I love him because of this and this and this. But like, Pumbaa is just funny and lovable. Yeah, they they are really great comic relief. I don't think anything in the movie makes me laugh harder than their hula routine, oh. which is just such a great <laughs> smash cut to a fun little song that's really well put together. And and two of the smaller characters we talked about, Moira Kelly as Nala, I think is so good. Like, mm-hmm. I, I borderline was going to say Nala's, like, my new favorite, because after watching it the other night, I was like, she has, like, got it together. She can, like, go out on her own. She can hunt. She can talk Simba back in. Even as a little kid, she just freaking owns him with what I believe is your favorite line in all of <laughs> cinema, if you would mind giving us your reading of it. Pinji again. I hear that on a weekly basis and it makes my <laughs> life complete. And also, and I know I'm going to screw his name up. I'm so sorry. But Robert Guillaume, he plays Rafiki. I think he is super good because he yep. he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And in some ways he is like comic relief. But I love that he fulfills this role of like the classic fantasy tale of like the super wise creature that acts like the fool. And it's only like mm. through the heroes like patience with them or being kind to them that they finally unveil like i'm the wisest person around and i'm going to put you on the path because like you said you you have that moment where he's baiting simbo with the the swash banana and it's really silly and kids can laugh in it but then yeah like you said he gives like one of the most profound things you've heard in a kid's movie about you can either run from the past or you can learn from it so i i have we gone through everybody in the cast Pretty much. I think we've checked everybody off. It's it's such a great voice cast. Like, everybody is performing their hearts out, and I think it's a big part of why the movie's endeared. One last question I kind of want to ask, because we didn't open with this, but it's something that I... This is only our second Disney movie. We tackled The Jungle Book earlier this season. Another Disney animal jungle movie, so there's a running theme in season two, but a, a, a big thing we came up against there that I think we have to come up against with all these Disney movies is... Are we voting the cinemas for nostalgia's sake? That it's just a part of our childhoods and we will destroy anyone who dares say anything against it because I think The Lion King 
does have a lot of issues. We've talked about some of its coding problems. We've talked about how its characters with senses of entitlement in their own way could be damaging to someone who doesn't like take a closer look at the movie. So the the question I have is, is this a movie everyone has to see simply because it's a Disney classic and we love it because we're nostalgic? Or do you think it stands on its own as just a great movie, devoid of the labels of like, it's a great movie for kids, it's a great movie for families. Do you think it's just an absolute must-see movie? Well, I have to admit that nostalgia plays into that. How could it not? But I believe, yes, it is a good movie on its own as well. Um, Like I said, it had been a little while since I had watched it. um, And watching it this time around, it just was... I don't know. I felt like I was inspired and that I was entertained, which is part of what I think makes a movie great is that you're entertained, but also maybe learn from it. So my answer to that question is yes, I think it's a standalone movie that can just be, that is just good. I'm in total agreement with you. Um, this this one was honestly easier for me than Jungle Book. The, the Jungle Book episode I really liked, but it's it's peppered with like, I like it, but, and, and we've just had a great almost 40 minutes of Deep themes, great characters, great jokes that has been peppered with, you know, the, the cactus butt joke. And, you know, honestly, I think that's part of the charm. Not all movies have to be great because they're so serious and they can't have a little juvenile humor. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I like all of the funny jokes. I like Rafiki, you know, being Yoda before Yoda fighting was a thing. Like, I, I think that that part where he's flipping around is really funny. So I, I'm with you. I think that this is unabashedly a movie I think everyone should see. I think it definitely deserves to be on the list of essential cinema because. It is so tightly made. It is about profound things. It is about things that kids need to learn and that adults need to be reminded of. All of the stuff that we've talked about in terms of the coming of age story and, and learning to grow up and how this movie encapsulates that, that moment where you start to grow up, I think that adults can relate to it as well. I think that is a big part of why this movie was the most successful animated movie of its time. I think it took until Toy Story 3 for it to finally get beaten. Uh, which is a, a pretty good record to hold for a company that just makes money hand over fist. Oh my gosh! I just yeah. The receipts from the from the remake are going to be crazy. Um, but yeah, I I'm very interested to see what people think because d- d- the Disney thing opens up a, a whole flood of ideas, and I am I'm not adverse to talking about the controversy, but it's been just way too much fun to talk about everything that this movie does right. So for that reason, I think it's absolutely an essential movie. And I hope this remake does it justice. I guess we'll find out. There we go. I think we'll be able to find out when you and I come back in two weeks to reveal how people voted for the animated one. So I guess we should put out like a, a PSA maybe that when you do go to cinemas.com to vote on with The Lion King deserves to be a must-see. Try not to talk about the remake. We're not, we, we wanted to put the episode, episode out before so that we didn't have to talk about it in relation to the remake. So if you got comments, whether for or against the movie, Try to keep them focused just on the 94 version. Uh, we'll, we'll have our, our spot to talk about the remake, but we are very interested in this animated classic right now. All right, love. Well, we, we're pushing our time, but with a movie this beloved, I'm always okay going a little over, but are there any final words that you would like to say in defense of The Lion King? I just love it. It's my favorite Disney movie by far, and I think it will always be number one for me. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming to share your love of it. Uh, But we're not done yet. We have another tale of royalty and living up to expectations. So why don't we head on over to World War II England to discuss the King's Speech. Let's go. Aren't you going to start treating me, Dr. Loeb? 
Only if you're interested in being treated. Please. Call me Lionel. I... I prefer Doctor. I prefer Lionel. What'll I call you? Your Royal Highness. Then... Then, sir, after that. It's a little bit formal for here. I prefer names. Prince Albert, Frederick, Arthur, George. How about Bertie? Only my family uses that. Perfect. In here, it's better if we're equals. If, uh, if we were equals, I wouldn't be here. I'd be home with my wife, and no one would give a damn. Well, please don't do that. I'm sorry. I believe sucking smoke into your lungs will kill you. My physicians say it relaxes the, the throat. Well, they're idiots. They've all been knighted. Makes it official, then. Okay, Amanda, so we have just spent a good 40 minutes gushing nonstop about how much we love The Lion King. Feeling a little guilty that maybe we're a little too one-sided on that, but here's our chance to be a little more even-handed with The King's Speech, a film both of us have voted a cinema-must, yet we were kind of on the border. We're soft cinema-musts. Um, what about The King's Speech gave you that hesitation? I think King's Speech has a lot of good quality things but none of them are, like, outstanding. Like, it's just, like, even-killed goodness. Mm. It's not like, wow, that is freaking awesome. But, like, when I tried to figure out when I was thinking of my reasons, I couldn't think of anything that was bad about it. It just is, overall, a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's a good movie. Mm -hmm. So it's weird, because in a way, I do think it's a great movie, but I totally agree with you that there's something that's so baseline about it that the reason it got a cinema must for me is not because i'm so excited about it and want to recommend it to everybody but that if you vote something a cine trust it means there's a group of people you don't recommend it to and i was like well who's that group of people and i was like nobody the movie's well worth seeing but it's also you know i don't feel super ecstatic about it it's it's a lot how i felt about um, the Artist, a movie we covered earlier this season with another best picture winner the the very next year one best picture same thing, like a really good movie, like super delightful, but it just nothing like leaps out about it being exceptional, uh, which I so I find that very interesting because one of the things that we both zeroed in on were performances, that this is a an actor's movie. That's kind of one of the things on the how to win an Oscars checklist that this movie checks off, that it's mm. an actor's movie. And you said um, one of the reasons you actually really like it and would recommend it to everybody is Jeffrey Rush, is Lionel Logue. You say he steals the show. So why don't we start with him? What about his performance makes this movie at least meet that base level you're talking about? And does it in any way become exceptional and go a little bit above like that good movie line? I feel like Lionel is this perfect character of being a little eccentric, but in just like this perfect way that you... You love him because he's charismatic and just has a lot of energy and passion about life. And he's really involved with his kids, which we see that on several different occasions. And I, I feel like that alone makes him still the show. It's just that he has like this passion that he just exudes from his being, basically. But I think what maybe pushes it over the edge is 
He realizes that if he's going to be able to help this potential king to overcome his stutter, that he has to befriend him rather than just try to be his mentor or whatever. Which, like you're asking, does that push it over the edge to make it exceptional? Maybe. Just because he kind of like takes the time to realize that in order to accomplish anything, he has to become, he has to be on the same level as um, Birdie. Um, anyway, so he has to kind of be on the same level as Birdie in order to make any um, improvements for Birdie and his speech. I, I like that, that that element of the character that he's so not into the pomp and all of the yeah. ritual of everything. I, I love the, the scene towards the end when they're in the Abbey getting ready for uh, Prince Albert to be crowned King of England. Yes. And he sits in St. Edward's chair and he you know, constantly has these things where he's pointing out like, it's a chair. Yeah, it's a, it's a rock. What do we eat? Like all of all of this is artificial, which I think is a good metaphor for kind of the whole structure of the government that is at play in this movie that um, I'm not much of a historian, but kind of trying to do a little research for the show, you know, bringing up like, well, where does the, the British monarchy kind of start losing absolute power because it's a constitutional monarchy? So parliament is still like a major governing force and the monarchy is kind of uh a, a unifying face for the nation so he doesn't have a lot of executive power but he still kind of the king or the queen stands for england like is supposed to be like the exceptional right. british citizen and um i i like that you know the, the points jeffrey rush makes about how all of that is artificial like really i think is what makes the movie kind of special in that it's taking the 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 period piece genre of filmmaking and not making it about the extreme class distinctions and the the lavish lifestyles that it's really a movie about these two guys kind of becoming buddies that's that was my point that it, it boils True. like that genre that i'm not i don't hate it but i don't particularly like movies that are just about rich people in estates and abbeys and oh they have their romantic entanglements you know i'm i think the king the king's speech cuts through that has the the buddy comedy element going on with the speech therapy angle but i think also introduces the reason why this is so important why it's so important that prince albert learns to speak because there's high potential for him because his brother is just so gregarious and is so in love with wallace simpson and is likely going to have to abdicate the throne that prince albert lives in fear of being crowned king because he can't live up to what his people need. And I think that that's such a great through line that it's not about a guy who wants to be king. It's about a guy who desperately does not want to be king, but still has a strong sense of duty, which is a theme that this movie shares with uh, the Lion King, realizing your potential and being who others need you to be. Right. So kind of on the same thread, what do you feel like Firth does to make his performance good or outstanding? Why I love him is that I kind of mentioned... I think his performance in some ways transcends this kind of role. So the, the, other ki the other things, you know, this checks off the how to win an Oscar list. You know, it's a movie about um, somebody either in like a very high class or a very low class, high class in this instance. And it's also about somebody who has a disability. And I think that the temptation for playing someone with a disability is to play super heavily into it and to really make the character seem kind of pathetic to really invoke pity for this character because they lie outside of the norm. And I, I think we see that most frequently in movies that are about people who are mentally handicapped. This is a speech impediment, but 
I think that where Colin first steps right, because he wins his Oscar because he's so good at portraying the the stammer, right? That's, right. And he does a great job. Yeah. And um, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but in a way he he does probably overplay it, especially as it actually happened in reality. But what I love about his performance is when you're watching him, you can tell it's not about like, how do I play this so that I'm getting the stammer right? You watch that and you see him trying to work through it, that it's about him desperately trying to get the voice out. And the stammer is almost secondary, like his performance is first and foremost that I need to be better than who I am for the sake of my country. And then the, re- the rest of it follows, you know, the throat closing up and the stammering and the frustrations. I think that's such a good thing for him to do in this performance to not just make it about, look how well I can imitate somebody who has the speech impediment. It's about, I want to get it like what this guy wanted to do. And I noticed that looking at some of the videos of King George VI, that a lot of that is there. King... This is something you brought up, so I'm not going to step over your points um, about how in real life King George's speech impediment was not this pronounced. But watching real videos of him, there is still this thing that Colin Firth captures where he's closing his eyes. He's trying to shut out everything, like just trying to get those words out, those sentences out, trying to be the king that he's supposed to be. That's the kind of stuff that Colin Firth totally nails. And I also, before we move on to that, just real quick, another thing that I think Colin Firth does that transcends this is that while he and Lionel do become friends in the end, and, you know, they have the, the formulaic, like, oh, we've broken up, and then they get back together in the third act. Right. The the class distinctions are still drawn. In the end of the movie, he is still king, and part of Lionel's arc is to learn to blend in, to kind of step down and realize, like, it's not about me. It's not about me being the guy who... Helped the, helped king. the king of England. Yeah. It's about I did that as a, as a service to my country and I need to kind of step down because he's the face that people need to see. And I like that um, the movie does that. I think the movie dodges a lot of the really bad, overly sentimental things that it could fall into by still kind of drawing the line between like Lionel is still of a certain class and King George has to be like up on this pedestal it's kind of heartbreaking in its way but also i still feel pretty true to life but this was one of your points and i'm so sorry to have stepped all over it but you you know your first point about it's a touching based on a true story movie even though it's not very historically accurate and um you brought all that uh to the table i didn't know that i thought that this movie was actually very well researched and you pointed out to me a lot of the things that uh weren't factually accurate so what were some of those things well, first off, I just want to say that I'm not a historian at all, so you could fact check what I'm about to say and <laughs> maybe find something slightly different. But um, it's my understanding that the king actually, he did have a stutter but it, or a stammer, but it wasn't as pronounced like Mike said, that it, it was a lot more, like specifically the first um scene where we um where he's going to give that speech and it's like almost like he can't even speak mm-hmm. basically i guess what i was reading is that if you go back and actually listen to the recording like obviously you can tell he has some type of speech impediment but it's not that not to the level that they portray it to be also kind of the feud that the two brothers have isn't necessarily a thing like that's something that hollywood has kind of taken and dramatized yeah so the 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 typical like artistic liberties taken to play up and and, you know those are both things that contribute to like key conflicts of the movie like you said the Wembley Mm -hmm. Stadium thing is the opening scene that clues you into 
I, I like the build up to that, that, you know, he's so nervous in the, you know, as they're sitting at the bottom of the stairs. And if you didn't know what the movie was about, if you just went in fresh, you'd be like, I guess the guy's just afraid of speaking publicly. And it wouldn't be until he started trying to talk that you'd be like, oh, so he like actually like can't speak publicly because he gets so nervous. Um, so I, I like that that's a good way to set up like what the characters got to overcome in the opening scene. And then the other thing that interests me is what you just said about um, his brother, King Edward VIII, who's played by Guy Pierce in this movie. I, I wonder if this movie overly demonizes King Edward because the the movie <laughs> paints him in this. Um, he's just a playboy, like his entire right. reign is summed up in this one party scene where Wallace Simpson, who's a, an American divorcee who is still married to her second husband, is throwing this lavish party and he's the king of England and the whole scene is set up to be like, this is not the ruler that England needs right now with Hitler marching into Poland. Um, so I, I, I kind of wondered like if the movie overly demonized him to show just just to raise the stakes again to show like why uh, Prince Albert needs to ascend to the throne because things are just a disaster like it's almost like a scar esque. You know, it's it's not like the land is dying, but it's also just like a complete nightmare. Yeah, for sure. I, I read a couple of things that um, he got into trouble because he, King Edward VIII had a lot of accusations thrown at him that he was a Nazi sympathizer. It wasn't like completely fleshed out. Maybe we should just drop the thread because, again, I, I'm no historian, you're no historian, and history doesn't play a huge factor in this. I think that the fact that this is based on a true story and I think takes... A decent and forgivable number of liberties is the more important thing, because True. like I said, what what I get out of this is that that relevant message that I made my first point that the movie is constantly asking, what makes a good leader? So if the movie is overly demonizing Guy Pierce's character, it is at least getting this idea out of like audiences immediately connect with the idea of like, that's not who I want standing as the head of state in my nation. Like I need somebody with a little more decorum, a little more respect and authority like i don't want this guy who's just out for himself and, and there's kind of a romantic sweep to that that this guy abdicated the throne of england for love like let's i'll, I'll give him some credit for that in real life like that's a, a pretty gutsy move to make uh the probably the subject of a perfectly engaging movie i know madonna took a crack at it with a movie called we that i didn't see because uh, it didn't look all that good so if anybody's seen we uh, you can tell us how it holds up to the King's speech. I'd love to hear if there's a, a more sympathetic angle to uh, King Edward VIII's story. But yeah, about about let's go along this like inspiring angle because I think that because we both have those words inspiring and touching are in our first points. So what do you find touching and inspiring about this movie? Um, I think kind of going back to this a little bit that I think it's really inspiring to see um, two unlikely friends become friends and stay friends. I think it's also inspiring to see someone overcome something that is a challenge and a frustration to them and is kind of like looming over their shoulders or like their head just like you have this thing wrong with you and and then King George kind of overcomes that in a way. So something you said made me think uh, a point I was going to make my point about um the buddy comedy actually being that it's I think it's a good movie about support systems because a performance I love almost as equally as I love Jeffrey Rush's is Helena Bonham Carter's as right. Queen Elizabeth. Um, and, and she, you know, it feels like she doesn't have as much screen time as like she needs. And maybe she has more than you give her credit for. But it feels like she's always in a scene for like 
30 seconds and it's always kind of the segue of like they come in arm in arm and then they part their separate ways but that speech she has at the end when he is i it might be my favorite scene of the movie because it's after king george VI has been crowned king and he's going through the the daily dockets and talking about um well the christmas broadcast is coming up and i think that that would be a mistake and then he's, well, here's an invitation to the coronation. And, and that's when he breaks down and says, that would be a bigger mistake. And he starts crying and says, I'm not a king. And that speech she gives him about how she didn't, she ref, what was it? She refused his first two marriage proposals. And she says, it's not because I didn't love you. It's because I couldn't bear a life in the limelight. I couldn't bear being the public image of this country. And then she has that great line where she says, but he stammers so beautifully, maybe they'll leave us alone. That she, she's loved him always for who she is. She loves him because of his stammer. Mm -hmm. But she also recognizes that he needs to overcome it to be what England needs him to be. And she, I worry in my plot summary, I dismissed her too much because I kind of just described her as like, she's the, the wife who offers undying love and support. And I worry that that relegates her to a, a thankless role of just helpful wife but i think she's such a presence in the movie so powerful so compassionate and still like to me kind of the best royalty in the movie because she always understands like the score socially speaking wherever she is like she knows where to draw the lines even in the very end when it we have probably one of the more sentimental scenes when the the family logue is meeting the the royal family and um the wives introduce each other and Right. You know, you think that would be kind of like the, oh, the king and queen are going to sit down and have dinner with the commoners. But Elizabeth has to decline the invitation and be like, oh, we would love to. But alas, a prior engagement or something like that. Yeah. Still dodging it, still saying like, we're we're the king and queen of England. We can't have dinner with this speech therapist and failed actor and his wife. Um, So what do you think of her performance? I think Helena does a really good job at portraying this support that is needed for King George. I think um, she's the one that pushes him to even get to speech therapy. The first little montage is basically is her taking King George to say like, you're going to this speech therapist. We're going to try it. It's like and dropping then, your kid off at the doctor. Yeah, but she's there. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then she even goes um, when before um, the King meets or Bernie meets Lionel. She's the one that goes and like, like, hey, I have someone who you could probably help. And and he's like, well, I don't know if I can take him on. And and then she's like, well, what if I told you it was the Duke? The of Duke? York at the yeah. Time. And he was like, oh, anyway. So it's like pretty much her doing that makes him overcome his speech impediment. And I think it's a really nice dynamic as husband and wife just to say like, Sometimes you need each other to push you to do what's um, necessary. And so I think that alone, she portrays that wonderfully. Like she just is there for him no matter what and is there for his dark days, is there to help him overcome what he needs to overcome. Also tying into that point you made about it, a great message is about having a support system right. and friends. And, mm-hmm. and this other point you made about how it's a movie about letting go of the past. I'm very interested in. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. Um, so Lionel tries to get out of Birdie what is kind of like the, the source or the cause of his speech impediment. And in order to do that, he kind of like pushes his buttons. So Lionel's kind of pushing his buttons to figure out, okay, like why is 
this man having this speech impediment problem and he kind of opens up and says like my dad was this way my brother's this way and all these things were happening and I didn't have food and as a child because of different um caretakers that he had or or whatever so I think Lionel kind of gets to see what that source is and then he kind of helps to tell him like that's the past like move forward with it um which is a nice message just to say like that happened and you can't change that but you can change today and forward and like move forward with your life um which i think is important for all of us to remember because there's times where there's certain things that we've done or have had happen to us that kind of just become like a crippling piece of our lives and that we just stick to it and we can't let it go but if we can learn to just say like it's time to just let that go that's when we can progress in leaps and bounds and just reach to that potential that we have which i think this movie says that and displays that in a really nice way yeah i, th- I think the movie has strong undercurrents of feelings of worthlessness and I, that's something i think that helps it connect with people that even a guy who's a king feels feels those second feelings. chance you know yeah. he, he was second in line he wasn't his brother no one loved me like they loved david and i think even listening to some interviews from when the movie was released about uh king george that tom hooper and the screenwriter were talking about um you know it's not uncommon for kids to develop a speech impediment like this so early on because if they feel that no one is interested in anything they have to say or that they have a voice then this actually kind of manifests itself in some cases and i think that that's an interesting idea to again put that on a king a character who is raised in royalty can still feel like i'm useless i can't i can't have any impact on the world and then just thrusting this guy into a position where i think he actually can have a big impact and i think that's what's so impressive about it too that it that it does let some credulity to the monarchy because again you know we have like this this image of the king of england like from revolutionary times as like the the executive power the authority and in modern days even in the period in which this movie is set that's not the case anymore but i like that this movie still makes a case for why the monarchy is important to um britain and especially king george you know at the end it talks about how he was uh, a, a force of or the face of like the resilience and determination of the british people that this is a, a success story it's almost an underdog story that if this guy can learn to be the voice of power and reason and resilience that boosts strength in a lot of people and i think that that's why you know the speeches that bookend the movies are so powerful and why i'm a little more okay with it taking artistic liberties to go from that first speech at wembley stadium where he can't even get the words out to delivering the news to a nation that for the second time in a generation they're at war with germany in a, in a conflict that is sure to be catastrophic and how inspiring that must have been in real life to like be able to hear that from somebody that you probably didn't think was going to be able to pull it off. Cause I think, you know, that first speech, like you really feel like the awkwardness of being in that audience of just like willing so badly for the guy to get through. I'm sure we've all been in places where someone who's not super comfortable with public speaking has had to go up on a podium somewhere and kind of just fumbled the way through it. And you're, uh, you're just like, Oh, come on, you can do it. Like, let's just get this through. I, I think the movie taps into that almost kind of, primal fear or uncomfortableness Mm. and it makes you so happy to see him really succeed so i feel like you're kind of 
touching ba- or you're kind of hinting at this um the question of what makes a good leader do you want to kind of expand on why you oh, think yeah. this movie talks about that and that actually kind of brings me full circle to what i was trying to get at is that the the movie showing the value of the monarchy even though it's a largely presentational position and michael gambon as Bertie's father king george v has that speech about you used to be able to be a good king if you could just look good in uniform and look mm. kingly, but now we've got to actually like talk to people and ingratiate. Our... He's so indignified that he has to like actually reach out to his <laughs> subjects, and he talks about how the the lowest form of life is an actor. And I think that you know that's a that's a relevant. The movie has a relevant message because that carries over today. That uh, you know politics is such a presentational arena that it's all about the the image that you can put out. And some people are super good at putting out the image with not a lot of substance. And there's a moment in the movie that is so good that I wish like more of the movie was like it. It's the scene where they're watching the coronation footage and it's been spliced together by the the archbishop and they think it's great. And then the newsreel keeps going and it's about Hitler on the march and, you know, the, shows the Nazi rallies and shows Hitler re- spouting out his rhetoric and um, King George's daughter, uh, Elizabeth, who is now Queen of England says, um, what's he saying, dad? And he gets that moment where he says, I don't know, but he seems to be saying it rather well. And that moment is so good for putting these two in like stark opposition to each other that, you know, what makes Hitler so great is his ability to speak. It's the thing that the King of England is lacking. And what puts the pressure on him is like to, to match this guy. I have to be an orator. I need to be able to rally people. They don't need a soldier. They need a leader who can talk to them and um, encourage them and bolster them. And I, I think that that just presents such an interesting dichotomy because there we have Hitler as a guy who can spin it. He can put out the image. He can get people riled up. But what does he stand for? And the speech gets at, you know, all the evil doctrine that Third Reich stood for, that might is right, that it was all in the service of just pure power for me. And what King George and what the character of King George gets across is that it's not about him. He's actually sacrificing himself by doing the thing he absolutely does not want to do most in this world. He'd rather pick up a machine gun and just go to the front line. That would be easier for him than staring down that microphone. And so that's that's where I think this movie is getting at this relevant message of what makes a good leader, because the answer to that question, to me, is somebody who wouldn't necessarily have the image all put together, but who can present themselves nobly and prove what we as a country stand for, because that's what he does stand for right is self-sacrifice and the greater good and um i think that that's what i look for in a leader and that's that's very simplified i I, we can't get into all that tonight i'm not going to solve all the world's problems but that's what's so inspiring about it to me and why i kind of buy into the movie's closing tag about how king george became a figure of the resilience of british people is because his heart is in his people he cares about his people and I'm impressed how well the movie gets that across, even though there's not a ton of scenes with him interacting with his people. So the timing of this movie with the last speech that he gives, I believe it's the one where he's like declaring war. Yep. And Lionel is right there to kind of like help him like orchestrate and like guide him through this speech. Having Lionel kind of guide him through that speech kind of lets the king no he's like i can do this like you you kind of like feel the shift happen with that where he's like okay i can be a leader for the country and be what they need at this time 
which I think um, he did. And yeah, no, it's it's a good climax. Yeah, so I think I think that's a really nice kind of like end to the movie, just to kind of like have that speech, and then kind of tie up loose strings. And again, it's it's so formulaic, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just about a person overcoming impossible odds to better themselves. But I still think like that that's just such a good journey because of how the movie ingratiates you with somebody who's just so lofty and above like your social standing. And I think that, you know, having Lionel in that booth while also being historically accurate is also a way of letting us in that booth, you know, to show that like the the people are with him in there as well. And Lionel kind of stands in for all of them because he's, he's one of the downtrodden, right? He's constantly picked on because he's an Australian. He's a failed Uh actor. You know, he, he lives quite the humble life. Um, But that's kind of what we like about Lionel is that he's, He's poor, but he's happy, and he's smart, and his quips are always really good, and it's it's good, to, like you said, to watch these guys become buddies, and again, that's a reason I love the movie, is that the, the speech therapy sessions are, are kind of fun, because you just get to watch, like, two buds kind of get at each other's throats. I mean, that leads back to, I think, that Lionel does a really good job at just portraying this passion for life, despite everything that he's been through, mm-hmm. kind of showing and giving the king an example of kind of overcoming hard things that have happened in a very subtle way. And and even Lionel, I think, has a good subplot about like kind of just rolling with it, that this was not his calling in life, that he, I think it's it's very implied that what he would like to do most in the world is perform Shakespeare on the stage, but he's, he's yes. a bit of a failed actor. And I like that Jeffrey Rush, you know, d- doesn't give like the absolute best reading when he's trying out for the play that it's it's still kind of like wonky and you very much see why those people would pass him over even if he was an Australian that I like that um he he stepped into his role because a bunch of guys came back from World War One shell-shocked and couldn't speak and everyone just said like well you're teaching elocution do you think you can help these guys and he kind of just self-taught build himself up from the ground up and and started helping people find their voice which I think is really cool actually yeah so yeah, uh, we're we're coming up on time to wrap. It's it's been so hard because I I really do like the movie, but I I very much agree with you that it's I I think it's a little bit above like kind of that baseline like good movie level that we're talking about. I I think it is still a pretty great movie. I see why it was an Oscar contender outside of just kind of being engineered to be one. That I think it actually in terms of these type of movies designed to win Oscars is incredibly watchable, is a lot of fun, is funny, it has wit, but it's also, you know, like we said, there, there's just a lot of other movies that you jump at way more to be like, oh, a movie from the past decade you've got to see. Like, The King's Speech doesn't come up very often. It's kind of more one like the artist that you think back on and you watch it and you go, oh yeah, I forgot how much I enjoy this, but you kind of have to drudge it out if you want to like really get into what's good about it. I will say that the reason why this movie is rated R is due to some language, but that's literally, it's like one scene. Okay, there's... Scene and a half, yeah. Yeah. So um, just kind of keep that in mind if you haven't seen it and are maybe questioning, like, should I see it? It's rated R. Maybe you don't watch rated R. That it's one scene that has a sequence of F. Bombs. Just, just an endless <laughs> string of profanity, which I, I really like because I, I when I first saw the movie, I thought it was just put in there to be like the the comic relief moment of like, oh, here's a, a king just saying the F word and shit and tits. Um, I, I like that too, thematically, the more I think about it, that 
a lot of what I feel King George is frustrated about is the constant need to put on the kingly facade. And that's a moment for him to drop the veneer and be like, I can swear just like anyone else and it feels good. And I don't stutter when I do it because it's completely removed from the stress of the public image. And I I think that that's really good. The movie has like a weird energy with those scenes and at the end doing all the tricks with like the waltzing and the singing. It's bizarre, very entertaining, but also you see like why it works. I think a lot of the, the montage of all the therapy sessions is a lot of fun with breathing up and down with Helena Bonham Carter sitting on his chest and doing the... <laughs> so yeah, fun, fun movie. Um, and I liked what you said about that scene before we went on mic as we were debating, is it going to make must for us? And um, you said you think that this movie passes the grandma test, which is often uh, one of the big tests to decide if a movie makes must. So the grandma test is simply, would I recommend that my grandma watch this movie? That kills a lot of people's cinemas vote a lot of the time. <laughs> um, but you said even with a string of profanity, you might recommend this. I would. I would fast forward the string of profanities <laughs> for my grandma because I know she wouldn't appreciate that. But I think every other point of this movie is wholesome and enjoyable for pretty much any age group. Obviously, young children aren't going to find this. I was going to say, like, yeah. the, the R rating is perfectly fine because this is a movie, like, only people over 17 would watch anyways. Yeah. So if you're, like, if you are considering watching it, I, w- I would recommend it. I think there's a lot of um, good things that this movie does, teaches, and, um, yeah. So I think, I think it would be a great movie to watch as a date night movie or... Oh, I agree. <laughs> And uh, I wonder if the, the PG-13 cut is out. That's a real thing. Um, the Weinstein Company released the movie as a PG-13 rating just with those two scenes excised in hopes of getting a better award season buzz. And uh, as infuriating as that is, it sure paid off for them. <laughs> so, yep. Um, yeah, I'm with you. We're, we're a soft cinema must on this, but still a movie I really, really like. I think it's well worth seeing. But um, as we end our discussion, we now put it on to you, the listeners, to make that final call. So. You are the ones who are going to decide if the King's Speech is going to make Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. Um, so head on over to episode 45's post at Cinemust.com. You're going to have two weeks to vote on both of these movies. Remember, this is not to say only one of them can make it. If you think both are must-sees, you can vote for both of them to be must-sees. We, t- we take them all individually. The double feature is just a little fun to bridge some thematics. Uh, So that poll is going to be open until July 29th, and we cannot wait to see how everybody votes for the movies. And we will announce the results for that poll on our next episode, in which Anthony Badger will come back to help guide us through webs of conspiracy, greed, and nihilism with The Big Sleep and The Big Lebowski. Amanda, thank you so much for coming all this way out to host yet another episode. It really means a lot to me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Yes, thank you so much. We cannot wait to see how you all vote. And remember, Akuna Matata. Matata.